every once in a while, it just strikes me how ridiculously good Aaron is. And that was one of those moments that, man, just thanks. Thanks. Um, I can remember when I was a freshman in college, and I went and purchased the album that that song is off of. It's a, a song that was written by Martin Smith, but recorded by David Crowder on one of his first albums called Can You Hear Me? And I remember lying in my bed in my dorm room at Colorado State, having my Discman next to me. And if you're wondering if it had bass boost and shock absorption, it did. <laughs> and I was listening to it, and I was thinking to myself, my heart does burn. Like, man, like, Jesus, I, I want you. Like, closer than my skin. Yeah, yeah. Like, all that stuff that Crowder's singing, I want it. I want it. I was going on to high school campuses and telling people about Jesus, people that didn't want to hear about it. They, I didn't, it didn't matter to me. Like, they needed to, right? And so I was just like, my heart burned. Around that same time, I started to want a CJ7 Jeep. My heart burned for that, too. And I went out and... And I, I bought one, not knowing anything about car mechanics and having like zero propensity for repairing anything. And it was a 1985 CJ7, and um, it didn't have a hard top. It had a soft, soft top and soft doors. And I can remember driving away thinking, this is my freedom, right? And I'm on my way home. It was about a 45-minute drive from where I purchased to my, uh, the car to my parents' house. And in it, one of those Colorado thunderstorms formed. You know those ones. And I was in this Jeep with no top, living it up, when a thunderstorm of epic proportions came right over my head. And it was a deluge that I feel like Noah in heaven was going, like, God, a little heavy-handed, don't you think? You know, like, and I can remember just getting absolutely destroyed by this thunderstorm and people in cars next to me looking at me laughing. And I had to, it was so hard, I couldn't dry. I had to like, you know, wipe the rain out of my eyes. And eventually I had to pull over and I had this thought almost immediately, not everything my heart wants is good. <laughs> not everything my heart wants is worth wanting because I wanted this. And maybe I shouldn't have. We're in a series that we're talking about, where we're talking about discovering God's will. And today I want to ask the complex question, can you trust your heart? Can you trust your heart? And before you answer that, can I tell you any simplistic answer to this question should be rejected? I think, um, and Aaron pointed this out to me, I think that Michael Scott and Dwight Schrute from The Office do a really good job of drawing out the tension. Take a look at this with me. My heart says no. Your heart is a wonderful thing, Michael, but it makes some terrible decisions. That's true. Yes. That's true. Gosh. You've gone down the wrong path many, many times. Jan, Ryan. Yeah, save your heart for love and use your brain for business. I, I love that. Could it be said any better? Your heart is a wonderful thing. It just makes some terrible decisions. You know, I was looking sort of back through church history, and one of my, my favorite theologians is Martin Luther, primarily because of his work on the book of Galatians, just, just breathtaking, but he's the, the, the father of the Protestant Reformation. I mean, nails his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door and launches the movement that most of us in this room are a part of today. And yet, 
And yet, especially later on in his writings, I'm, he is a raving racist. Hates the Jewish people. Um, was Martin Luther good or bad? <laughs> um, David, let me, let me, let me, King David writes some breathtaking psalms. He, I mean, he's a poet, man. Like, oh God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Good or bad? Got a trick question. Good. It's good. Um, Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. Good or bad? Good. David delighted also in Bathsheba. And with a name like Bathsheba, you know she was hot. And so David sees her <laughs> bathing on the top, I'm just saying, on the top of a building and says she looks good, calls for her, brings her over, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, knows she's got a husband, so that's not good. He's away at war, brings him back. He won't sleep with her, sends him back to war so that he's killed. Good or bad? Bad. David, good or bad? <laughs> you. Me, good or bad? In a, a now infamous interview, the then sort of pedestrian Walter Isaacson, he's come to be one of the best biographers of our day, was interviewing Woody Harrelson. Or sorry, Woody Harrelson. Um, he was interviewing Woody, Woody Allen. Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson's like, don't put that on me. And Woody Allen, here's what Woody Allen says. He says, the heart wants what the heart wants. How many of you have heard that? Yeah, we, we, that's a sort of, that's a famous line in our, our culture. Um, but most people don't realize what he was talking about. See, Isaacson was pressing him a little bit on the romantic love relationship that he had with his partner's adopted daughter, Sun Lee. And what he said was, the heart wants what the heart wants. And sometimes the heart wants to be romantically involved with your adopted daughter. That, that's the genesis of that quote. The heart wants what the heart wants. And so many of us who follow the way of Jesus, we've been around church, and so we sort of, we read this, we hear this, and we go, well, yeah, exactly. That's what the prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And for most of us, that's the end of our theology of our heart. It's deceitful. It's wicked. It's bad. It's wrong. We should reject our heart. There's no way that our internal, that, that, that sort of that internal voice, the, the spirit, the conglomeration of everything that's inside of us, our heart, that there's no way we should listen to that. Well, what happens when your heart wants to be generous? What happens when your heart wants to do what's right? What happens when your heart wants to follow Jesus? We just sang a bunch of songs. Did you catch that? We just sang a bunch of songs about our hearts being drawn to God. What about then? Most of us, I think, have an overly simplified view of the heart. It's either good or bad. <laughs> Whenever people point out this verse, I just want to remind them that the heart is deceitful above all things is not the end of Jeremiah's diagnostic about our hearts. He continues to write about the heart. I don't know if you're aware of this. He goes on to 
prophesy about the new covenant. And here's what he says. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their what? Their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. If you read the same promise in the book of Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 26 and 27, what Ezekiel says is that God's going to give you a new heart. And if you or a follower of Christ, if the Spirit dwells in you, um, here, will you just lean in for a moment? You have a new heart. You do. Now, you may have moved some old furniture into it, but you have a new heart. You've been renewed. You've been restored. Um, so, so let me ask the question again. Should we trust our heart when it comes to decision-making? Is the heart trustworthy? Well, it depends. It depends. Let me sort of unpack for you and with you what the Apostle Paul says. If you have your Bible, Philippians chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 12. If you're new to the scriptures, it's, it's sort of towards the end of the Bible Paul's writing to a church that he helped plant at Philippi. And here's what he says. Here's what he says. Now, just if you're, if you're perspective, and many of us, this is, we just sort of have this ingrained in us that our heart is, is wicked, our heart is evil all the time, which I, I think would suggest that we would have a propensity to use reverse psychology on ourselves, right? So if it's wicked and I know I shouldn't want what I want, then I'll not want what I want so that God will actually get, give it to me and then I'll be okay. But good news, you don't have to do that. Verse 12, <clears throat> that would be really complicated anyway. Therefore, my beloved, Paul writes, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. For it is God who works in you. For it is God <laughs> who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Will you turn to the, next, the, the person right next to you and say, God is at work in you? God is at work in you. And then will you turn to the person on the other side that you don't like quite as much, and will you, will you tell them... <laughs> God is at work in me. God is at work in me. Yeah, 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 yeah. So this is what the Apostle Paul is pointing out, that God is at work within. God is at work within, guiding us toward his will. That God is on our side, working in us and working for us. And Jesus took the Spirit's work inside of you so seriously that in John chapter 16, verse 7, he looked at his disciples and he said, guys, I know you've grown fond of me, guys. I know we've walked together for three years, but I'm going to leave and I'm going to go to my father's side and it's better for you that I leave. It's better for you. Because if I don't leave, the advocate, the spirit, the one who's at work within won't come. Like, Jesus thought it was so important. The work that the Spirit would do in your life, sitting right here in 2019, would be so powerful that it would be even better than if he were here. Like, soak that in for a moment. See, when you are seeking God's will, 
you are not working in opposition to God. You're not. You're working in partnership with him. And actually, your spiritual formation, we're going to talk about this in a moment, is a partnership, a divine partnership between you and God. We're called to cooperate with the Spirit's work within us. Unless we think that this is easy, that we just sort of sit back and enjoy the ride, uh, the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, to people who have a new heart, mind you. Here's what he says. For the desires of the flesh, that's that old furniture that you, you moved into your new heart, okay? Your new house. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. This is all happening inside of you. This is why we can't answer the question simplistically, are we good or are we bad? We're a battle zone. For these are, say it with me, church, opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want. So Paul's going to, this is anthem. Stay in step with the spirit. Live in the spirit. Paul's suggesting that just because God is at work in you doesn't mean the battle is over. Au contraire, the new heart is actually the invitation to war, not the end of it. God's at work within. And if this is the case, if there's this against and this opposed all happening within us, you know, the sort of the, the picture of the angel and the devil on our shoulders may not be all that far off, Right? <laughs> The question I think we should be asking, and you probably are because you're smart, is, well, how do we partner with the work God wants to do in us? How do, how do we, if the Spirit's at work within me, how do I partner with what the Spirit wants to do? Because I believe that God is the author of life and the giver of every good thing, and he has good in store, and, and I want to get on board with his agenda. It's a great question. I'm glad you asked it, because Paul actually addresses that. Here's what he says. Here's what he says. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always, say that word with me, obeyed. So now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. So he's, he's writing to a church that he's not, not physically present with, hence the letter, and he's giving them some encouragement. And Paul, an apostle of Jesus, has this mindset. Obedience for disciples is not optional. It's not advanced Christianity. It's not for like the super spiritual elite. It's for anybody that would say, I want to live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And, and for those in the first century, they would have had this understanding that when you become an apprentice to somebody, whether it's to a cobbler or to a blacksmith or to a rabbi, you had three goals. You had three goals. One was to be with that person. The second was to become like them, like in your character, to become like them. And the third was to do what they did, with, like, as. And so here's Paul's, like the first thing, before he talks about any of the internal workings of our soul and following the way of Jesus, here's what he wants to say. Church, look up at me. Do you want it? Do you want it? Do you want his way? Do you want his way when it conflicts with your way? It's interesting because despite what you may have heard, Christian spirituality is not about the crucifixion of desires. It's about 
the focusing of desires. It's about the alignment of desires. And in fact, Buddhism is more about detachment from desires. Christianity is about the fulfillment of deepest desires. And what Paul wants to do before he goes anywhere else is he wants to say, man, like, like before you follow your heart, before you trust your heart, test it. Like, test it. Do you, do you really want the things of God? It, this is Paul's prayer that we started our service off with. If you were here for the call to worship, I think two of you were, um, you heard this, right? Um, this is Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24, uh, where Paul writes, search me, O God, and know me. Test me and show me if there's any way that's offensive or wicked within me. So here's what Paul's saying. Here's what Paul's saying. He's suggesting that there are some desires in him that he might not even be aware of that would be pulling him away from the way of God. So he's going, God, I'm positioning my life before you. You see me. You know me. Show me. Show me what's there. I think we're conditioned within evangelicalism that God's going to show us a bunch of junk. And he might show you some of that. But I want to suggest to you that if you don't see any good, you aren't listening well enough. That if he doesn't show you anything that's beautiful and true and noteworthy, sit longer. Because our, our conditioning is, there, I'm just, I'm, I'm Jeremiah 17, 9, I'm wretched, I'm wicked, and what Jesus is over you is, you're Jeremiah 31, 33, sit longer, come on church, sit longer. That was a total side note, but, but worth it, I so, Paul, so, so David's disposition is, God, search me and know me, because I want to see if there's any way that I'm off. I, I was reminded this week of um, Polonius's line in Hamlet, where Polonius says, to thine own self be true. If you're familiar at all with Hamlet and Shakespeare's writing there, you know that Polonius is the moron. <laughs> Polonius is the guy that that's the fool in the story, we may not want to be true to ourselves all the time. There may be times God wants to show us something good and beautiful, and there may be times that God wants to show us something that's off. But here's, the, here's, here's what I want to do this morning. For, for just a few moments, if you'll allow me, I want to give you some language to try to diagnose what's going on in your heart. I want to give you some tools, maybe, that could help you along the way, because there are times when our heart aligns with the kingdom, and then there are times when it's off. There are times when we operate out of our wounding, we operate out of our pain, we operate out of a twisted desire. And the reality is, those things are really important, because as Thomas Merton says, he says, life is shaped by the end you live for. You are made in the image of what you desire. And if you don't like Thomas Merton for whatever reason, all he's doing is rephrasing Psalm 115, verse 8. Talking about those who make idols, he says, those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust them. Our, our affection determines our direction. That's what they're both saying. So what do we do? 
when we approach God, knowing that he's working in us and having to sort of dance between there's good and there's, there's bad in me, there's beauty and um, there's some things that are off in me, what do we do? Well, here's some of the language people have used over the, over the ages. They've used the language of ordered and disordered desires. You have both in you. The ordered desires are the things that are good and beautiful and true. They're the things that point us out, that cause us to love It causes us to be generous, to be sacrificial, to live what we have written on the wall in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Those are are ordered desires. They come in alignment with who God is and what God's doing. You also have some disordered desires in your life. So we can point those out a little bit easier sometimes. But those are the things that suck me into myself. They cause me to operate out of selfishness rather than selflessness. They don't add vitality to life. In fact, they leech it away because they take me out of the way of love that I was designed to live in, that you were designed to live in. Ordered desires and disordered desires, you have both. You have both. Now, so here's a question you might be asking. Where do these disordered desires come from? If, if we're created by God, and you are, designed by God, and you are, where do these disordered desires come from? Well, the scriptures would say in Ephesians chapter 2, they come from three areas, okay? They come from the world, the flesh, and the devil. That, that's its diagnostic of why your heart is under attack, the world. Have you noticed that there are times when the world would propose a direction that's just so commonplace that it becomes like the air that we breathe? (laughs) Like greed, or maybe lust, fear. That like these these are just so common they're in our every morning newspaper. That the world that we live in sort of tries to uh, coerce us away from the way of Jesus, but there's also something going on inside of us that can lead us away. Unless we think that we're completely evil or completely wrong, a lot of our flesh that pulls us away from God is birthed in wounds. It's birthed in pain. It's birthed in things that didn't turn out the way that we wanted it to, and we prayed for something else, and something different happened, and we started to carry this conviction. It might sound like this in the back of our head. We began to believe that in order to be safe, I need to protect myself. We begin to believe that We need to pretend in order to be accepted. We begin to believe that in order to be loved, we've got to produce. And these are are, our fleshy, distorted desires. And And then you head into that, the spiritual component of the fact that you have a very real enemy for your soul who would love to steal, kill, and destroy everything that God wants to do in your life. Let's close in prayer, amen. Right? No, I mean, this is This is us. This is us. We are complex beings. We are complex creatures. But before we just go um, sort of moving on from that, an important pastoral word that I want to give you is that those desires didn't, those distorted desires didn't come out of nowhere. That underneath every single distorted desire, hear me on this, hear me on this, lean in, is a God-given good desire. It's a God-given good desire. In fact, I'd be so bold as to say it like this. Genesis 1 precedes Genesis 3. Now, quick time out. We have everybody on board. 
okay? <laughs> now let me unpack what I mean by that. Genesis 1, it is good. It is good. Precedes Genesis 3, it is broken. So it is good, precedes it is broken. Chronologically and anthropologically, I should have just used these words, in chronology and anthropology, it means it comes first, goodness comes first in the story, and goodness comes first in you. You've never met somebody who didn't have the goodness of the Imago Dei imprinted on their soul. Every distorted desire is first a good desire, and it's a God desire, and sometimes it's our wounding, and sometimes it's our pain, and sometimes it's our situation, and sometimes it's the devil, and sometimes it's our flesh, but it gets twisted. But hear me on this. It's good before it's bad. I love the way that James Bryant Smith put it. He said this, we are made in God's image with original goodness, which cannot be marred by our sin. But we are also made in his likeness, likeness which, can be dis, can, which we can distort every time we choose to sin. Friends, I would love us. Will you lean in for a moment? I would love us to become the kind of church and the kind of followers of Jesus who instead of starting our story of what God is up to in Genesis 3, start it in Genesis 1. After all, that's where it starts. That's where it starts. So let's just start it there. Instead of starting with original sin, let's start with original goodness and original blessing. That's where the scriptures start. I think this truth could fundamentally change the way that we view ourselves and the people around us. See, what, what happens if we refuse a complex understanding of our own soul? What, what happens if we think we're all good? Well, we, we might make some really terrible decisions. Your heart is a beautiful thing, but it makes some bad decisions. But what would happen if we thought that we were all bad? We, we would doubt the greatest light God is giving us. So if you're looking for a practice this week, man, can I encourage you, like, do your best as you have a decision to make and you have desires that swirl around in your soul, may, maybe take a step back from all those things and try to name what's your deepest desire, not your strongest desire, not the one that's on the surface, not the one that's manifesting, what's your deepest desire? Like, what's underneath that anger? Is it, is it justice? Is it respect? Like, what's underneath the lust? Is it, is it longing for love? Is it longing for intimacy? Like, dig a little deeper. Do a little bit of work. You deserve it. So here's the deal. If testing the heart is about naming things that are swirling around inside of us, and, and I think that's what it is, this next phase, and, and these will be admittedly shorter, um, is about allowing God's presence to reshape those desires. Is allowing God's presence to reshape those desires. And listen to the way that Paul does this. He says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, say those two words with me. Work out your own. Now, this is fascinating. Um, 
this is just sort of, if this is wrong, I'm just sort of thinking about this now, but it's interesting that Paul says, that Paul says, work out your own. Like, it's not your job to work out someone else's. Work out your own. And let the Spirit work out the other person's. Okay, that's a side note. Um, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Please notice, he does not say, work for your salvation. He says, work out your salvation. Because God's at work within you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So, who's working? You or God? Yes! Yes. Yes. You are. And God is. And we've become so afraid of a works-based salvation that we've forgotten that the invitation to the spiritual life is actually a partnership between you and God. As Dallas Willard, I think, so poignantly puts, and that might surprise you to hear me say this, (laughs) grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude, effort is an action. Grace, you know, he says, I love this, does not just have to do with forgiveness of sins alone. Like, God, certainly grace is about forgiveness, but grace is about every day empowering for you to work it out. Because God is at work within. And he says we do this with fear and trembling, and we're not afraid of God. We know this from Romans chapter 8 and 1 John chapter 4. We do not have to fear God, but we do have this sense of holy reverence and sacredness and awe that the decisions we make actually matter. They matter. And so we not only test our heart, but we also, we train our heart. We work it out. And we can work it out because God is at work within. And Paul's encouraging this Philippian church to a participatory spiritual formation. We do our part and we trust that God does his. Actually, let me, let me say it more specifically. We do our part and then we get to experience firsthand that God always does his. He always does his. So what's our role in training our heart? What, are, what, do, we, what do we do? Now, I'm going to do my best to keep this succinct. I'm going to give you in four minutes um, my best summary of St. Ignatius's methodology for spiritual discernment, okay? Um, and I think St. Ignatius was one of the most brilliant um, writers the church has ever seen when it, has, when it comes to spiritual discernment. He was way ahead of his time. And here's his, his thesis. His thesis is that you can do nothing to your own heart by willpower alone. And that when our desires are disordered, like we just talked about, it creates an, an environment inside of us that we naturally do not like. This is called desolation. Especially for those who follow the way of Jesus, have the Spirit of God living inside of them. Have you ever made a decision that you know was going against the way of God and it felt like someone was punching you in your soul? So desolation is this spiritual turbulence that's, that's a, really a loss of sense of connection with God. I can remember when I was a high school pastor at a church in Aurora, and I started to sense that God was leading me to become a college pastor somewhere. And I started to look on job boards, and, 
And there's about a handful of jobs that seem like they fit both in job descriptions and theological convictions of the church. And so I put my resume in at each of those and I got a call back from a church in Memphis. And I said to my, Kelly, my wife, I said, I got a call back from this church in Memphis. And she said to me, I don't want to live in Memphis. <laughs> and I said to her, but they have great barbecue. <laughs> I mean, like, like I am digging, I am digging deep for reason. And like, and she's like, I'm not moving somewhere because of their food. And I'm like, dang it. Um, <laughs> So anyway, um, being the good husband I was, I decided to go to the interview. And um, I got on this plane, and I kid you not, I kid you not, I got on this plane, I had a little bit of a cold, but only the, the divine intervention of God can explain what happened next. Our plane took off, and my ears exploded, and I could not hear a dang thing. They flew all these candidates into, the, into this hub in Dallas, and they interviewed us there for a few hours and then sent us home. And I went to the wrong concourse because I couldn't hear where they were saying. I showed up, and I'm like dialed in. They must have thought I was like the most attentive person in the world. I'm like trying to read their lips. I'm like, I didn't know if I was even answering the questions they're asking. I told them that, you know, my ears had exploded and um, that I was Jonah running away from God. And... Um, <laughs> Got back on the plane, flew home, landed, was able to hear just fine. And, and Kelly said to me, how'd the interview go? And I said, um, I went deaf, and I don't think God's leading us there. <laughs> Let's close in prayer. I mean, I really, they called me back. That church called me back and said, hey, we know you couldn't hear anything. I'm like, that's an understatement. Um, but... We, we really liked what we heard. Would you be willing to come to Memphis to go to the second round? And I had this like internal, like there was desolation in my soul. <laughs> and eventually I said, well, sure. No, I'm just kidding. I said no. <laughs> I said no. And then there's ordered desires that lead us to this other place, right? This place where we might explain it like we just have a sense of peace. And we underplay that, friends. We underplay that. If God is at work within, we should be attentive to those things. We shouldn't write them off. The Spirit is at work. If you have a sense of peace that seems to align with the way of Jesus, why not assume it's from Jesus? And here's the thing. We have gotten so conditioned to assume that if we want something, God couldn't want it for us. That we initially write those, immediately write those things off because they're in line with our desires, even though God's working on our desires to conform them to his, and then sometimes they do, and we go, nope, couldn't be God. He wants my life to be terrible. I know it's God if I'm only doing something I don't want to do. Consolation and desolation. And so what do we do with that? This is more than a four-minute seminar. I apologize. In um, desolation, what do we do? When we just have this like, oh God, I'm not sure what to do with this thing. I don't have peace about this. It seems like I'm curving in on myself. What do we do with it? Here's what we do. Here's our practice. We bring the desire before God and ask him to work on it. This is the only place true transformation happens. We ask him to work on it. And then we try to distinguish. When we bring our desires before God, we try first, we tested our heart, we try to distinguish between what our strongest desire is, sort of that manifesting desire, and what our deepest desire is. And then we bring it all. We bring it all. 
and we receive open-handedly the Spirit's guidance and conviction. John chapter 16 promises that the Spirit will convict in righteousness and sin and will lead you and guide you. Do you believe that? Third, and this is sort of, I've made a baby with Ignatius' spiritual direction, so this is his and mine, but um, we remind ourselves that willpower and law is inefficient. But the spirit is power in life. Fourth, we refuse in moments of desolation to go back on decisions we made during times of consolation. Are you picking up the, like that, that? When we make a decision, when we have peace and, and we, we're connected to God and feel like we're hearing God's voice, that in moments of desolation, we don't go back on those decisions. Fifth, Ignatius would suggest that seeking out companionship and spiritual friendship is really important. And then finally, he says, and then do the next right thing. And I added that it has nothing to do with your decision. Whatever that next right thing is in front of you. Because oftentimes, God will start to speak to that decision indirectly as you walk in his way with his heart. And if that doesn't work, repeat. Repeat. And and I would just add a side note that if you're in a moment of desolation that you try your hardest to resist making decisions, you wait on God. You wait on God. And you go through this process and ask that he'd speak. If you're in consolation, praise God. Here's your process. Tell God how you feel and thank him. Store that moment away in your memory so that you can return to it when things get tough. I hope you have a consolation bank in your heart and mind. Use the energy you feel to further your deepest desires. And let the surplus energy fuel the things you don't like doing and do them. (laughs) Step into them. Enjoy seasons of consolation. You're close to the heart of God. And then finally, for God is at work in you, both to will, so to want, and to work, to actually put your hand to the plow for his good pleasure. So lean in for a moment, okay? Lean in for a moment. When you have tested your heart, and when you have trained your heart, you can and should trust your heart. There's this space of revelation inside of you. The Spirit is actually really, truly speaking to you. That's what the Scriptures say. And oftentimes, we are so lazy spiritually that we're waiting for a word from the outside instead of fighting for a word on the inside. And God says, I'm at work within And when it comes to making decisions, our heart and our surrendered affections may very well be one of the greatest guiding lights we have. We're just so conditioned to completely ignore it. So here's the deal, friends. Test your heart. Train your heart. And then trust your heart.
And we may be, I mentioned this already, but we, we are so conditioned to think if I want something, God couldn't possibly want it for me. But what we failed to realize is that our desire for God doesn't originate in us. It actually originates in God, in God's desire for us. Like he's wired this into us. So the challenge is to learn to be attentive to what's going on on the inside and, and attentive to the heart of God. After all, I think Augustine nailed it when he said, love God and do whatever you please. For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. <laughs> Here's the deal, friend. If you think that God wants your life to be miserable, I have great news for you. I'm so glad you came to church today. This may be the best news you ever hear. You're wrong. You're wrong. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 says that God who richly provides us with, say that with me, everything to enjoy. What's his desire? His desire is that we enjoy it all. Everything from food to taste buds, his design. Creation to vistas, his design. Friendship to lovemaking, his design. And his desire is that we would enjoy it all in its rightful place, surrendered first and foremost to him. It's all his idea. And he wants to teach us how to enjoy it. Regardless of how much we try not to want, we are wanting people. It's who we are. The question isn't whether or not we want. The question is whether or not we want what's good for us. Test it. Train it. And then, trust it. See, God longs not just for your obedience. He actually deeply wants your fulfillment. It's amazing because on this Sunday, we get the chance to celebrate the table. And it's on this table that we actually have a, a collision of desires. I mean, think about this. Every time we come and we gather around these tables that followers of Jesus have gathered around for 2,000 years, we have a collision of desires taking place in one meal. We have God's desire that he says is definitively, eternally for you. He wants you. And what the table reminds us is not just that God loves you, but it reminds you that God likes you. Like so much that he wants to be with you. And he wants to be with you so much that he gives his own body and his own blood in order to make that happen. But the table is also a collision of his desire with our desire. When we come, when we take of this cup, when we eat of this bread and proclaim his death until he comes again, we align our hearts and say, God, we want what you want. We want your way because we believe you're good and we believe you're beautiful and we believe you're true. And when you want that, you aren't wanting something that God doesn't want for you. You are wanting something that God is working inside of you to want. So when you come to the table this morning, come wanting. Come hungry. Come restless knowing that our hearts only find their rest in him. Come and be filled by this God who says, I want you. And I invite you, want me, want me. So Jesus, we do. We come this morning with all of our desires. We don't put any of them aside except to surrender them down to you, but we own them. They're ours. If they're disordered, would you work them out? 
If they're ordered, would you help us own them, celebrate them? As we come this morning, would we be reminded that your desire is for us and that if we desire you too, we're aligning with what you're working in us. So thank you, Spirit. Do your work, we pray. In Jesus' name.